welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation Volume 7. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and working in Japan and also the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Enjoy is a Japan-based global-facing business working in English and Japanese and French sometimes, and we're committed to providing research-based policy expertise and evidence-based diversity, equity, and innovation strategy to support companies. We truly believe, and we know that diversity rocks innovation. And so this live stream is uh, going to shine a spotlight on the beautiful diversity of all of the Enjoy DNI thought partners who are making individual efforts to bring inclusion, diversity, positive environments, and gender equal leadership into the world in their own unique way. So through this live stream in particular, we are engaging in what we call thought partnering out loud. And I learned about this practice from a leadership coach in Seattle named Izumi Yamamoto. And uh, I really, it really stuck with me when she talked to me about this and she said, oh, Jackie, if ever you want a thought partner, just let me know. And it really struck me as such an important lifelong learning practice that we can use as adults and as children and in all ages and to build solidarity with others and help them roll their projects forward and their thinking forward. And for me as a business, um, as a feminist business committed to further furthering democratic equality and uh, reciprocal giving of ourselves, respect for differences across leaders and stakeholders, um, this is a, a key practice that we are, we are using for the live stream and we hope it spreads across Japan and the Asia Pacific. So each week I invite one guest and our goal is to show up without our business cards, without any hierarchies or senpai kohai relationships. And we're just humans thought partnering out loud in defiance of all of the social hierarchies that really trap a lot of our identities on the day-to-day -day living basis of how we experience uh, others sometimes in a negative way. So today we're going to enjoy a horizontal relationship we will enjoy learning about each other's diversities and our radical individuality and how that really makes for a collegial exchange of expertise, worldviews, identities, and experiences that can really change the world. So I am so pleased uh, to introduce today's guest. She figures among the women who I'm featuring in our special series in commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the triple disaster that hit Tohoku, Japan on March, March 11th, 2011. We remember it all too well. For me, it was an experience in Northern Sendai, living uh, in a relationship with a seven-month-old child and then trying to figure out what to do and how to survive for the next uh, month and two months and whatnot, um, and, and struggling with how to fit in with the diversity of my own family formation at that time. And from that, I started thinking about, you know, I had been working on research and law reform from a feminist perspective and around diversity and women's inclusion, but I'd never thought about disaster risk governance and emergency management. And that sort of kicked off a 10 year, my last 10 years of research um, working. And I was so honored to be able to partner with Megumi Ishimoto here today for a participatory action research project that we began in 2015 with her organization called NPO Women's Eye. And so Megumi, welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Jackie. <laughs> I'm so happy to talk to you today. It's going to be a fun conversation, I am sure. There's so many things for us to, to, to relive and to go back over and to discuss um, in this volume seven of Diversity Rocks Innovation. And I guess what I'll maybe encourage uh, to start, if you could, 
I know you, there's a lot of things we've talked about in the last, uh, the last uh, five years. It feels like longer than that, that we've known each other, given all the times that we've come together for collaboration. But for those who maybe don't know as much about you, maybe you could start with uh, introducing, you know, what is core to who you are, who is Megumi Ishimoto, and let's think about your journey pre-311, pre-what the events of 311, and we will get into those. But maybe first we can start out with where did you come from, where have you lived and been raised, and how do you identify sort of your core identities and your core values? Wow, that's a great question because, uh, you know, I was always asked, you know, where, where were you at the time of the 311 and what did you do after the 311? So never really was asked before that. I, uh, I'm i from Wakayama Prefecture. I was born in a very small uh, Inaka countryside and grew up. And the, uh, you know, I liked the uh, music, uh, American pop, rocks, and the I had several milestones that's really you know let me here uh, in who I am right now. The one of the important thing is um, when I was 32 years old, I was working in Osaka City and working as uh, I was high school graduate, never really went to university. And also was working as a temporary contract worker. And I was, I wasn't married. I was single. I was enjoying drinking a lot of wine. But one day I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen after 10 years to me working as temporary workers? Will I be still having job? And will I be alone? Will I be, you know, with no, not much good, education, I mean, I was okay with high school graduate, but I always had kind of a complex. So one day I decided to educate myself. I started to take a correspondence uh, college class while I was working full time. And then I switched to uh, Knight University. And after I graduated university, it was like, it took me like five years but it's then, dedication. Uh, yes, yes. You know, it was hard, you know, studying and having full-time job, but still I, en- I enjoyed it very much. And before that, I was o- always thinking about myself. I was worried about myself, you know, but then after I started and I feel, feel like I finally got a space in my heart that allowed me to think about something else. So I started to see what's happening in the world. I mean, in a society, in a community. And then I, I was working in the American company. And the, at first I was working as part-time. Then you know, people around me, including my boss, was watching what I was doing, studying, kind of, you know, working hard. Then I got become, became a contract worker. It's a bit better, I mean, no, better con- uh, situation than the part-time. Finally, I was promoted to a full-time worker. So I started to get involved in the CSR project. And that really made me think about uh, Mm. the issue around me that I I was very lucky to have this opportunity to work for the project called Kids International that 
working with a high school student living in the, how to say that, orphanage. I met many different kind of high school、uh, students, but you know, it was very difficult for them to think about their future, like I was, but more in a severe situation because、right. you know, many of them said they just don't believe the adults or the, they think there is no future. Really, because they don't have any、uh, family or things like that. So, I really started to think because that was a CSR project. I really started to think what CSR project can do and they could, yeah, this could impact people, life, and the community,、yeah. really, and the social issues. And it seems like so fascinating that you, I mean, in some ways, you graduated out of high school. In a sort of,、uh, I guess, a normal upbringing with your two parents present, <laughs> and then went into working part time, gradually decided maybe that wasn't going to help you long term. So you, you started thinking about how you could support your life and your career opportunities, and then thought about. You know, the re education. I mean, it's not common. I, I, I mean, I think you were one of the first people I met. Who said you had gone back to do university as, a, as what we would call in Canada sometimes a, a, a mature student?、Mm-hmm. And so, when, when adults go back to retrain, if you will, and get university degrees later in life, you don't really hear about that much in Japan. And so, I, you were the, one of the first people I went, wow, that's so fascinating that you thought to do that. And then you decided to do that. And then you did it. You just, you just had the courage to just say, well, I'm going to be. In these, these courses with, with individuals who might be you know, young, 10 years, my, you know, my junior in terms of age, and, and you're at a different stage in life. But you just thought, well, if you want to get the education degree while you work, that was you know, your, your choice. So then to think how much empathy you must have had for these high school students when they're also wondering about their future already, they haven't even graduated yet, and they're already、mm-hmm. worried about their futures because they don't have a family, they don't have. Parents to look out for them and help them.、Um, you were obviously in the right place at the right time to be the, the sort of mentor, if you will, to, to understand maybe what they were going through and then to help them think through how they could just think about their life、yeah. in a positive way that gives them hope. So, how did that allow you a chance to, in some ways, pay forward your own learnings? Oh, yes. At the first Uh, right after the project, one of the kids, I mean, high school students, asked me that the, one of the projects was teaching them English and also the、uh, culture of Jap- Japanese culture as well. And she told me that she wants to keep studying English. And the, also,、um, she didn't think she could go to、uh, higher education, but she started to think maybe she has an opportunity. So, I think I did like a mentoring with her. I didn't even know the name of the mentoring back then, but you know, I met like monthly, once a month, and the, I gave her a homework in teaching English and talks, you know, how their life are and how my life is. And I think it took like two years or so. So, and I saw her that she found,、uh, how do you say, the supporter. Uh, personal supporter who pay for her college tuition and she got into college. Then, then she decided that she w a n t to do more 
And she started to have her own dream that she wanted to work for a travel agency that so she could travel the world. And then uh, she also uh, transferred to university and she did graduate the university and she got in, she got a job in the travel agency. And, oh, I guess I did more than two years uh, with her mentoring, but I saw her in a life with changing and that's because she met this project. Maybe that's one of the, you know, one of the reason, but she met this project and she met me and she started to think her potential in herself. Then I thought, wow, <laughs> really? And so powerful. Yeah. Well, because of this project I met and I decided to do a master degree that where I will, back then I thought I will study much more on the uh, CSL project hmm. so that I could contribute. Well, and, you know, I think in some ways we start out and I, I guess that's maybe why I think thought partnering is such an amazing practice, because I think you can start out with, you know, you're just holding the space for another person to talk to you about their ideas, to talk mm -hmm. you through their fears, to talk you through their, their concerns or their anxiety. And you just kind of listen and you can hear their, their thoughts and you can partner back to them and say, well, have you thought about this? Or what do you think about that? And just even that exchange of having a space of somebody who can be a sounding board, who can, who has your back, like who's on your team and really wants the best for you and just wants to help you move your ideas forward. And I know we often call that coaching or we call that mentoring, but I think at a very baseline, basic level, even without, I think, those uh, formal terms or names or, or, or certifications, you know, I think thought partnering can be a much more one-on-one, -on -one, just uh, horizontality of supporting each other in, yeah, thinking out loud and developing our ideas about what we want to do for ourselves and how do we get from point A to point B. And mm -hmm. I think if you can imagine that that, you know, that that young uh, teenage girl didn't have parents to do that thinking with or, or to go through that with or someone who's older, you know, and can give that kind of sense of feedback and who's on their team. And if you did that for two years, let's, you were probably one of them most present adults in her life, maybe at that time, really holding space for her. And then, you know, I, I learned more than she did. <laughs> Isn't that amazing, right? I mean, yeah, that's the it best is. part too. So I convinced myself that we go back to uh, to university. You know, I did five years in working and studying and that was tough for me, but I thought I could do something much more, uh, not not only for me, but for, for, for something, for the, for the society. Oh, that's what I thought. And then I became a very good negotiator that <laughs> because to go to the, uh, to do the master, I had to take some classes and I had a full-time job. And so I negotiated with my boss. Uh, he was a CEO that time and I was his uh, executive assistant back then. And then I negotiated with him, like, you know, please, I'll come early, uh, start early. So could I just have uh, one extra hour for the lunch break so that I could go to university and get have one uh, class and come back, wow. right? Wow. And so I will work uh, overtime as well. And I'll negotiate with other assistants as well. You know, please cover <laughs> me, please. And like, they were all nice. They all helped me. 
And I was working for a GE that time. And, you know, it was very, I learned so much from that company and from my boss and from my colleagues. Wow. And yeah. wonderful that they had the, I mean, one of the things that certainly I always, I think we've been hearing about for 30 years in Japan, as well as other countries, but particularly it's acute in Japan, is the um, the rigidity around FaceTime hours in the office and, and how that works against so many other facets of our life in terms of caregiving responsibilities, of course, but also mm-hmm. lifelong learning opportunities to be able to take that at, you know, that university class when it's offered and flex work allowing you know, for, for you to, if you're getting your hours done and you can arrange to have a good, you know, collaborative way of covering each other amongst colleagues, why wouldn't it be, you know, encouraged that here you are improving yourself and bringing more skills to the company through your studies and your master's, but sometimes that's just shut down on a procedural basis. Well, no, your working hours are, you know, 8.30 to 6.30, and so there's no flexibility, and, and so mm-hmm. no, and the answer becomes a procedural no. Mm-hmm. And um, and so many women in particular, but also men, of course, face these challenges. And if we can move to more, I mean, so you obviously, you're, you had a very progressive, I guess, or more open-minded. They were more flexible and willing to allow you to innovate and have time freedom for yourself to manage your schedule a little bit to well, be able to combine these two. I was kind of desperate because I really want to do, but I had to, uh, you know, make money for my own living as well. So I had to negotiate and I can say that, you know, it, it, the people think that it's probably not really possible because I have a a full-time job and, you know, my Mm. time is fixed, but, uh, depend on the boss, depend on the job. But yeah. If you ask, maybe something could be arranged uh, if you can't do the first wish still. So anyway, I got in and the, that was very uh, tough three years because uh, mm. <laughs> I never really imagined how much I had to read and write. <laughs> and the, yes, and but I then I got another opportunity that I... Um, I started to study more about the social enterprise uh, that was quite new back then. And from a CSO, social enterprise, then also non-profit organization. Because uh, my professor told me, uh, you know, Ishimoto-san, you can study CSO, because, but uh, CSO would probably need a partnership with a more Japanese non-profit, uh, NPO, NGO, but, you know, NPO NGO was still not so much, not so much there yet. And you better mm-hmm. study that part. And I was kind of thought, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> and that's how I started to study uh, nonprofit organization in Japan, especially um, uh, fundraising issues and also uh, PR marketing kind of thing that they should most, uh, they're too busy. I know right. after, you know, 10 years, but back then <laughs> I was just reading and writing and then thought, oh no, uh, non-profit, you know, you are, you know, they're really doing good job, but they just focus so much on the field and they don't PR or say enough. And so they should write, you know, they should do that more. And, but 
Now I know how difficult it is. (laughs) There's a burnout factor when you're responsible for fundraising and strategic direction and implementation and mentoring your team all in the same, you know, breath, really, um, without without a huge staff, right? It's always a a shoestring staff to work with. Mm -hmm. So... That's oh yeah. Really challenging. Oh yeah. And then the uh I got I, I was lucky to get uh, uh a grant, a study grant, research grant, small research grant so that I was able to go to a South Thai for a week or two for research for my own research. So I visited um uh this is Burma, Myanmar. Uh undocumented immigrant community in South Thai. And I visited the nonprofit. Uh, they are the also the uh, uh, Myanmar people who are helping their own people in the community. And I was there and the, I didn't know about them. I, I kind of asked my friend, you know, do you know anyone, like uh, any organization? And she introduced me and I just wrote email. I want to go there and I really want to do the research. I have this own team. And then she's, uh, that nonprofit replied me, okay, Megumi, I will pick you up at the airport. That's the only contact I had. And I believed it and I fired to the South Thai. And I was hoping, please, someone be there. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I was picked up. It was very, really good experience for a week or two in, with the Mima community. And the uh, the one thing I really learned there is she took me around to to her uh, schools that they, they had their own school to teach in uh, for kids because the community was like three thousand people undocumented living in South Thai. So they have many kids and the uh, very not but not safe jobs because of the status and the many difficulties of the no insurance, health issues. So they had uh, uh, supporting health, uh, providing schools, providing anything to live. And she took me one place that was, she told me that this is one of the most poorest uh, community. And I visited there. And the, you know, the, you can't really say it's a house. It's a, just a wood. You can get in there, but like the windy. Yeah. If, if the rain, it comes in and it's wet and humid. So I could smell the really, how do you say it? See, not nice smell. And I could see the, you know, I could hear the, the, uh, everyone, it's a very noisy place, like, I know, people are living like that, uh, kind of a slum. And what I learned is that before I've been there, I was there, I, re- I just imagined what the communities are like and what great job they're doing, but I didn't really know what smells like, what it looks really like, and what I could hear. So I really thought that's, it's, to me, it's important to be there and to feel that how it is like. Well, and I think our, you know, our full body sensory lived experience of something, of course, goes so much deeper into understanding and seeing it with our own eyes, having the, the what our body also then takes in of observation, not just reading 
about it or or knowing it at sort of a cognitive level, but actually experiencing it mm-hmm. and experiencing the individuals and then how much more that that resonates with us. And I think um, it helps us have a window into the lived realities that otherwise we wouldn't be able to make the next leap of empathy um, yeah. and really feeling a sense of solidarity around, wow, this is not what I expected, right? And I can imagine now if we pivot the conversation slightly towards then the events of the Great East Japan earthquake, tsunami, mm-hmm. and nuclear meltdown, of course, at that time, and so now we've got this rich background on your trajectory prior to 311 and who you were and what you were pursuing. But then let's let's zoom in now to the events of 311. You were working in Tokyo, I believe, at that time. Yes. And how did you, I mean, all of the things you've just told us now about what you found to be important, obviously, I think, enriched your decisions in the immediate aftermath of the of the earthquake. So maybe talk us through what you were living and experiencing um, on 311 and then your thought process thereafter. I was in Kanda in Tokyo. Uh, I was on the fifth floor of the building. I was walking. God, it shakes so much, right? Even in Tokyo. So we evacuated and we evacuated to the near uh, school ground. So many people, like a people, so packed up people there and watching at the building shaking still because of the aftershake. And some people started to watch the their uh, iPhones and and but we couldn't just move, you know. So we, I think we stayed there like a few hours. Then someone started to say, you know, there's a tsunami coming and there's a news. And I think we saw uh, that first image of tsunami and this very small, tiny mobile phone of someone because mine didn't really work (laughs) already uh, with that connection. And then uh, I was with my colleague, and she had she had a, a small child, and she was so worried what's you know what, what's happened to her uh, kid, and the she she said Megumi, I really want to go home and really want to pick up my kid uh, to the hoikusho, uh, uh, the daycare, daycare, yeah, yeah. So because she couldn't really get. And you know, uh, she couldn't get any information at all, right? Mm, no connection. So yeah. So we decided to just start walking. So we walked to, you know, we lived in the same direction. So we started to walk, and like, I think we walked like, uh, I think I, it took me for three or four, for three hours maybe. But I was lucky that I was living in the uh, Tokyo area so I was able to go back to my home but then so after I got home I start watching the tv what's happening in Tohoku and back then I was still had a job working in Tokyo so I still went to Kanda office every day and did my work but then you know everyone I'm sure everyone was just kind of playing for Tohoku back then and just crying and was shocked and so worried. And everyone thought what we can do there. So I was one of them. And the, 
back then I already decided to leave a company and to pursue for my next career. That's totally different from the company <laughs> job. But, and I had a time, I thought. So first time, first I was still working, but I took a, a day off and went to Ishinomaki in early April to do the volunteer work and also to be there and see what's really happening. And I was really shocked to see the devastation of the scene and I was there. So, you know, it also changed my life, the scene to be there. So going, like <laughs> when you said you went to Myanmar or you went to, you, know, you saw the, the Myanmar um, living conditions, you know, when you were there and seeing it at the grassroots and then when you went to Ishinomaki for the first time yep. and really saw for your own eyes. Yeah. How did that impact your your next decisions? Well, I I had to go back, you know, physically I had to go back to, to Tokyo and but I couldn't live like before. I couldn't think like before after being there. And I I knew what's happening in Tohoku from the news on the TV, but it just uh, a personal experience that's really that was different just to see, you know, as, a, as long as I, I see that devastation continues, I decided to go back to, to Miyagi Prefecture and to do whatever I can do. So uh, in May, I, you know, I didn't need to go to the company anymore. So I went to Abrantia. My first plan was just for a week or maybe a month but it continues many years. <laughs> did you quit by that point? Did you quit your job so that you could go up and, and do sort of a month of volunteering or how did you arrange? That? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually uh, the, I told my boss that I will leave my uh, job and I will quit. And uh, three days before the three eleven, And so I, you know, I kind of was just ready ready yeah to go but my first plan was uh, uh, because i started uh non-profit in japan and also the uh developing countries and uh, international ngos so i back then i wanted to study uh, i wanted to work in the for the international ngo in the asia uh, i was mm. thinking going to bangladesh uh back then but little did you know that sort of all of a sudden Tohoku would become decimated by the, the tsunami to the point where it was now like in a conditions of a developing country, right? Of having to start from, from ground zero of rebuilding all of those communities and starting really from scratch. And that was now in your home, in your home country, in Tohoku as a you know, as a reality, which meant you didn't maybe didn't need to go all the way, was a was a right, go traveling all the way abroad to to be immersed in that kind of work. You could actually help at home. So when you when you decided to go, how did you choose where to end up and where to volunteer? Well, uh, at first I was checking the any opportunity, any volunteer opportunity, and uh, I was. Uh, 
I was checking the all the information and some international NGOs were providing volunteer opportunity, but very strict that I had to prepare everything with tent and sleeping bag and everything, all the food and waters and everything. And I had to uh, be there from this day to this day that was exact. But then uh, I was still walking, so I thought it was difficult. And then I was checking and I found a volunteer uh, center, RQ uh, Citizen Support Center that was providing opportunity for, I mean, kind of anyone like me that with no experience, but they represented, he, he said, like, you know, you can do anything, you know, you can come right now. So we provided the opportunity. So I thought maybe even I can go. Then I registered and then I went uh, in early May. That was the start. And fairly soon into your volunteer work, I mean, you could maybe describe for us how you became involved and, and how perhaps you ended up building out, I guess, the support services for women in particular, right? Yes. So, so, you know, I wanted to do something, and but I never really, oh, I had no knowledge or uh, kind of, oh, I had no interest in gender or women's issues. Back then, yeah, that's a lot of people. <laughs> right? A lot of women are in that boat, and that's that's not surprising. But I think it's interesting, right? It's interesting, yeah. but it's not surprising, right? So more than ten years ago, I had no no knowledge, but then I just again, I just uh, I just met the issue. I just saw the issue. The uh, I just heard so many voices that there are. Uh, the issues, especially for women. So after three days, I arrived in the volunteer center. The the city and the a local women's group start, uh, decided to start uh, a women's support for uh, in the evacuation centers, and they invited uh, you know volunteer group as well. That no, back then in the Bronte Center, there was like more than 100 or 200 people coming from uh, all over Japan. Or some of them are from the world, you know, all over the world. So uh, they thought it's good that, you know, city and local women's group and Bronte Center all together will work for the uh, women supporting evacuation center. And so because I told them, I mean, in the volunteer center, I told them that, you know, I can be flexible. Uh, I can stay long. So I don't have any uh, hope or I don't preference to what kind of work that I do in as a volunteer. So they assigned me, oh, Megumi-san, you know, can you go to that uh, women's support project? That was the support. That was the start. So we started to visit the uh, evacuation centers in the you know many places all together with the city, the local woman and me, and we were all walking, you know, talking together and meeting with the leader of the evacuation centers and meeting with the women in living in the evacuation centers and what their needs, what's the issues. I mean, the local women uh, decided to have a uh, questioner 
to the other evacuation centers only for the women and the personal request that what they need to ask because uh, we we've noticed. I mean, you know all the issues, right? Uh, it was two two months after the uh, the triple disaster, so I thought I was imagining that it's there must be all the staff are there and the evacuation centers, but yes, there are a lot of staff, but especially for women's uh, underwears, there are many, but it's not their size so that they can really use, you know, and the, of course, the many kind of uh, products they needed, but it was very difficult to them to speak up. And it's hard. We we sort of take, I think, for granted. And there's, you know, increasingly um, different organizations around the world that are speaking up about, you know, period shame and menstrual oh, yeah. menstrual mm-hmm. supports uh, and making sure, you know, New Zealand has decided to have um, uh, feminine hygiene products and, and menstrual products available in schools because sometimes even in New Zealand, which is such an advanced country, but I guess there's, there's challenges around do, do girls stay home from school and absent themselves because of shame or concerns around um, period shame. And so, you know, if you can imagine in an earth, in a, in a post-disaster context, you're in an, an evacuation center and your choice is to go up to any of the men who are the heads of the evacuation center or the leaders of the evacuation center who pretty much are all men across, you know, when we look at the research on post, you know, what the reality was evacuation leadership, there really was just an absence, right, of, of not enough women in those roles or even in public facing, you know, service roles so that women could say, well, I don't really want to have to talk about these private things to the head of the evacuation center. And then what do you do in the absence of of having another way to solve that? And so, of course, having, and certainly from the research I've done on women parliamentarians, women citizens are more likely to go approach an elected official when it's a woman, because they think that elected woman is a little bit closer to their reality. And if there's issues that are sensitive around their reality that they're worried a man might not empathize with, if it's a male, a man who's an elected official, who's their representative for, for, for parliament, they may not go. But we do see a propensity of women to feel a little bit more comfortable to go talk about those issues with a woman elected representative. So we see that at the highest levels for national politics, and also to local politics. So of course, in an evacuation center, having yes. your needs, being able to voice your reality and your needs and thinking that the person on the other side will be empathetic and will be supportive and will hear your concerns and understand them mm-hmm. is such an important piece of psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yes. So my volunteer uh, organization was also providing women's uh, products especially for women. And uh, when they visited, uh, not just only the uh, evacuation centers, but there were uh, many houses that was, the house was there. I mean, but still because of the no gathering, the, uh, you know, the roads were uh, blocked. It was difficult. They didn't have any access to the food or water or anything they needed. So that uh, Brante Center was, you know, driving and many cars and visiting, bringing all this stuff 
they try to match uh, men and women uh, to go together. And I thought it was kind of a really good idea. But, um, until then, I wouldn't notice what, how uh, important that was. True. And so, you know, you've now been working with and, and from this, you know, RQ uh, Volunteers of Center, mm-hmm. of course, was born NPO Women's Eye. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can maybe did you raise your hand and, and say, well, I'm still here and I'm still willing to help. And so let's 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 build something that can be more of a long term solution. Right. Because there's a point at which Tohoku was such a tremendously huge event that it's not like other earthquakes where it's, you know, there's damage and then like within a month you're back to life as normal. I mean, we're talking, this is going to take a decade or two decades to rebuild. So then building the the infrastructure, right? The societal infrastructure, the NGO organizations and the the kinds of institutional knowledge that and the capacity building that then can stay and keep building throughout the next nine years is tremendously important for the next step of rebuilding. Mm-hmm. So how did you then move to the next level of creating this, this wonderful NPO that's really been sustaining women uh-huh. and working with women leaders for yeah. 10 years now? For the first one month, I was still thinking of going to Bangladesh after Tohoku. But then uh, the leader of the volunteer organization uh, told us me and other volunteers who are working for the women's project, he told me that he's been creating this kind of organization for citizens organization to support in a disaster area for since the uh, earthquake in Kobe. So so he did a many in many areas, right? And including in China as well. And he told me that because from his experience, there is always, always, uh, we need to support women. There's always women's issues. And he, he, he's seen that. And this kind of, you know, the huge devastation, he told me that it will take at least a few years. And we really need to, to, to start, uh, I mean, real women's support center, I mean, women's support project not just project, but really commit. we really need to commit. So I asked myself how I feel, do I, what do I do? And then I've decided, yes, for the first time, I already met so many women in the uh, evacuation centers and I really thought that we should continue and we need to do more. And so uh, on June 1st on um, in 2011 we created our you know organization before women's eye uh argue women's support center I became the how do you say sub leader of the as a position <laughs> and the the leader of the volunteer uh, organization became the the leader of this women's uh, organization as well because everyone knew about him around the area and no one knew about me so and or other people or as a volunteer, so that's how it started, and so we became we became our own. I mean, kind of organization within the organization, not just a project. It's like there's a, a succession building, right? Because you later then took on uh, the role of representative director and 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 became the one leading the organization and, and building that forward with all the responsibility that that entails, mm-hmm. and. 
I remember meeting you in, I guess, 2014, uh, just on the lead up to the um, Third World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction that was going to be held in Sendai in, in March 2015. And it was going to be this new international agreement around disaster risk reduction. And I had been working and, and collaborating with, um, you know, Domoto Akiko's network around trying to do law reform and getting the Japanese national um, laws to integrate gender and diversity considerations more adequately. But then also the, the, the framework shifted towards the international legal framework and how do we get that text, that agreement to actually hear that the words we need to take women's leadership seriously as leader, you know, the women's agency on disaster risk is key to the benefits for all in society. And then how do we think through the diversity point as well? And, and I was involved in those conversations when I ran into you and you were so passionate about yeah. to build this new exciting grassroots academies program to help train and raise up the young women leaders in Tohoku. So I mean, that was sort of the beginning of our journey mm -hmm. um, and collaboration. And so maybe you could speak about what have been the biggest successes from your perspective for, you know, four years intensely uh, from 2015 till 2019, having these leadership academies um, three times a year, maybe more four times a year, also doing two trips to uh, oh, yeah. abroad internationally. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what the big takeaways are for you in terms of how you networked young women leaders struggling to rebuild? And then what have you learned through that amazing project? Thank you. Uh, so in almost four years, yes, uh, we did, uh, including the first ones, uh, we did uh, 10 times for the the train each training sessions, but not just one day, but usually like two to three days mostly. So you have to stay all together, uh, stay over. Um, I think the network that they got to knew each other, so that they are not alone. So and they can ask for help, and they can talk if they have difficulties, or they can look up like. They can always check the Facebook or other SNNs that they can find other, you know, kind of sisterhood, uh, the, the member that are really working hard or they were recognized or they are asking for help. So that's, they're the part of the kind of network of the, not just a member, but something really warm, <laughs> you know? <laughs> They are, you know, they can just say weak things. Weak, you know, weakness happens. You know, you are not always thinking that you know I can do it, and you know, we should try to do it. But sometimes you are defeated, and sometimes you feel lost. And everyone have that, and we can share that too. We can show the weakness each other. That's I think it's really important important point. And also the uh, that we try to create the training as comfortable as possible, and we we did in to mainly in in Japan it was in Tohoku, Miyagi, Fukushima, Iwate in in turn, and we chose a very nice venue. Uh, one time was in Fukushima and the a house, but was built for the artist. So it's so nice, you know, the place is so beautiful. 
building is so beautiful, it's so artistic. And that kind of place we, we always chose. It took us so long to research to find that uh, right place. But then also the food that we try to find the local, organic, and really good food for them, and the sweets and drink and everything to welcome them. And we wanted to care them that the people, the women, they come to for three, three days. That was sometimes, not for all, but sometimes it was difficult to convince their family or the, the surrounding people that they had to go for three days just to take this training trip. And I think we underestimate how much of a big ask that sometimes is in rural Japan, where women are really, in some ways, expected to be on call for every member of their family. And yes. they're sort of oyomesan yaku, their, their daughter-in-law uh, role within the family and their wifely role, even if they work full-time, and their mothering role. I mean, those three hats alone and plus they have their own parents that sometimes they're caring for as elderly they've got like four caregiving roles and sometimes they're also working full-time on top of all of that and so and these are right young women and so this is what I found so fascinating about being having the opportunity to research and track and follow and learn with these women through the academies that that you allowed me to, to join and be a part of uh, wearing a researcher, but also as a participant hat, so that I was one of the circle, not just an external person, you know, trying to observe, because that's part of also, you know, feminist research methods is about you learn with each other. You don't, you don't just stay objectively on the outside, because that's not possible. Mm -hmm. um, but figuring out, you know, that those spaces you were curating for these, these women were a nourishment for their minds a nourishment for their hearts, a nourishment for their bodies, right? And it was a chance to refresh, I think, and just even have a space to breathe and say, wow, for the next two and a half days, I only have to worry about myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like two and a half days out of the year, right? Yeah. That they yeah. get to just actually focus on their needs. Yeah. Their, what they'd like to eat this morning, yeah. what they hope to learn from the day, how they yeah. want to spend in community with other women, young women like them. And like you said, also to be able to share about their vulnerabilities, about their lack of confidence sometimes, about the fact that they're having these problems when they try and move a project forward and they're not getting support from the local government or from these different actors who don't understand and don't empathize with what they're trying to build and getting strategies from other women, other women yeah. leaders who say, oh, have you tried that? Have you tried this? We'll just go around that person. That person's a blockage. No, no use convincing them. Go around them. Try another avenue. And so the ideas and the thought partnering, right, that can organically happen in that space is so powerful, right? And <laughs> when I yeah. first went yeah. to those yeah. academies, I sort of went, I feel like I am in, I'm experiencing, mm -hmm. um, you know, in North America, we talk about the feminist consciousness raising movement that began in, began in like the 1970s, where literally it was just a bunch of women getting together in the kitchen. They were getting together in the kitchen to talk about what they were experiencing in life and what challenges yeah. they were facing. And they yeah. were just talking with one another about 
what they were experiencing and trying to make sense of why they were experiencing what was happening or, or, you know, feeling maybe disrespected sometimes or not being appreciated or being taken for granted on all of the caregiving front. And so it's those organic conversations among women sharing with each other that then builds this natural consciousness around, oh, it's not just me having this experience. It's like so many of us having this experience. And then, then you can begin to start wondering and asking why we are having these challenges and maybe it is related to structural inequalities that we've built into our systems right and it's not their fault it's not that they're not they until you can come to that realization that it's not me the problem right I'm not I'm not crazy for wanting to try and build more of a child-friendly city in the reconstruction planning like that's not a crazy idea that's a legitimate idea that's a real need for women and men and children in the new rebuilt cities so why can't my voice be heard by local bureaucrats or why can't my ideas be understood and, and supported? And you exactly. can get to the point, so, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's why. And we knew how difficult for them to even come for some of them. So, so it was for us. I mean, I was lucky enough to have a very good team that I can't, I couldn't do it by myself. Right. I have a really good uh, teams uh, who are professional trainers and including you, the uh, participated, provided the diversity uh, ideas and thoughts and the leadership. Also, I was so grateful because, you know, how I knew how hard it is for them to come and how to how high the hurdle to come to get there. And also that I recognize them. So it means that they are recognized in their communities as well. And I knew how hard it is to be recognized as a young woman. They don't call them leader, but kind of, you know, someone who are doing something and that it's not easy in the small community. Yeah, I just admire their uh, courage and their actions uh, they are making a difference in each communities and uh, so that's the place that the grassroots academy was uh, built and we also grew you know uh, because of their voices you know exactly. you hear me you know uh, moms can come without any uh, daycare or to pro- I know, support system so Yes, that's right. First two times we couldn't do it. So the, from the uh, Grassroots Academy in Iwate in 2016, I think, uh, we decided to provide a full uh, takuji. Yes, and, uh, on-site um, caregiving for the children of, of, yeah, yeah, of the participants, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, brilliant, for, brilliant yeah, solution, for right? three days and at night we could all you know with kids we go we can all have dinner together and yes. so that uh, many of them started to join us with kids and you and too it's an, yeah it's such an <laughs> yeah. important inclusions and mechanism right it, it requires a lot of institutional support because you need to hire trained daycare workers you you know or hoikushi or people who really you can entrust with the children so that they feel safe bringing their children and then it's a hurdle. They don't have to deal with negotiating on the home front if they say, oh, but I can bring the baby. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. <laughs> then, there's, then there's like one less argument or one less hurdle to participate, to have this right, this this freedom to come and learn for yourself and for, for your own development. And I think this there's so much I still want to hear from you. So maybe we can run a little bit longer than I had initially expected today. But I think these are the, the devils. I always say the devils in the details of women's inequality. 
And in terms of getting women's empowerment, the devil's in the details. It's it's do you have an on-site daycare, you know, provision so that these young child rearing women can have those options to participate and don't feel shut out um, because of caregiving responsibilities that might be a challenge. Do they, you know, are there other supports that can be offered? And how we think through the details of their lived reality, the really details of their lived yeah. reality, and then what yeah. they're facing to be able to give and to get their families to support them to leave. And so impressive then that you did two international week-long academies. Yeah. yeah. And that these individual women, they started out locally, they did the two and a half day trainings, they learned, they went back and, you know, they shared back to their families, I think, and they shared back to their communities. And they managed to then get more support and permission and buy-in and really to be able to go a week abroad for this amazing opportunity. Yeah. Um, A whole week, which I know we often, and I think those of us living in, who've lived in different big cities, maybe take for granted that, you know, if you're not living in a multi-generational home anymore, where you live with your grandparents, you live in three generations, and therefore there is a lot of caregiving responsibilities that falls to women. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, you know, women in Tokyo or in Osaka or in major cities around the world maybe don't feel that pressure that if they want to go out, they have the freedom. If they want to go on a trip to somewhere, they have that freedom. If they want to go abroad for a week, they have that possibility. But so many women in rural Japan with these caregiving realities, right, and embeddedness in a multi-generational home, maybe do not have that. And just even thinking about that piece, you were so courageous. So talk to me about the first uh, training that you built um, with iLeap in Seattle and how that that was transformational. Yes, it's it's also related to me uh, studying that I also started to take a leadership program for my own in outside of Japan because, you know, I was also one of them, you know, the Gastro's Academy participants. Like I I wanted, I faced so many issues, but it was thinking really small things, but I couldn't really see from a, a different point of view. And I started to participate one in the uh, Tomodachi uh, Leadership Initiative in 2013, I think. Then I met several you know, different kind of leaders. And the, the 2014, I participated in Boston, uh, JWI, Japanese Women's Leadership Initiative by Fish Family Foundation there. Oh my God, I, I, was, treating, I was treated so well that they provided Every detail, like everything I drink, everything I eat, everything, uh, all the sweets are so beautiful. And I felt like, oh my God, is it very expensive? Or or I like I felt like I was treated so well. I was welcomed and and the venue was beautiful. That also I exp- I myself experienced how you know I feel that. Uh, the how beautiful the venue is matters and how the food is matters and the atmosphere matters. So in the uh, 2000, uh, I think think 16, I uh, participate Vital Voices um, Women's Leadership Program in South Africa and and where uh, 50 women leaders from the globe were chosen and got together and I saw one woman with a small baby, as you said, like eight months old baby, and she was participating. 
And the uh, three other women, they said, they're pregnant and they were participating and they're right. And, you know, of course they checked with the doctor and uh, the one woman from uh, Brazil was, she took uh, her mom to take care of the, the baby while she was attending the program. And that was all okay. The uh, Vital Voices was trying to, everyone, how we can be comfortable, how we can participate. It's not... It's, it's not because they're pregnant so that they can not participate. Because they have a baby, they cannot participate. But they try to include as much as possible. And I thought, oh, my God. And, <laughs> and I think it's possible. And it's, I think it's really important that I experience myself as a participant. And it's exciting that they yeah. helped. In some ways, there's this, um, they're, they're, they're diversifying, they're challenging the stereotypes around who can be a leader, right? And then, oh, well, if you're pregnant, you need to take a time out now. I mean, you're, you need to go back to biology and just like tap out for a while because now mm-hmm. oh, you're pregnant. But, well, why, right? And if you feel good and if you want to be there and learning during that phase, or even if you have a, you know, a, an eight month exactly. old or whatever, why does that, why, why does our society tell, think, why, why is it this, this idea that somehow you're written off as leadership caliber now because you must be on the mommy track and therefore you won't be fully committed and being able to deliver for your company or for your organization or for whatever. But really, there is no reason to be, we we know that productivity in human beings is, you know, maximum productivity is roughly five to six hours a day of maximum really intense, you know, full productivity of a human being. Mm-hmm. And so we work these crazy long days, but really if we would be strategic in how we used our time, there is no incompatibility between high productivity and innovation and leadership and excellence and having children and having caregiving responsibilities. But exactly. we've, created, we've created all of these workplace cultures and all of these organizations that are boxed in around one man's, kind of a lifestyle and it doesn't even service men well because men have so many different hats they also want to wear as fathers and as you know sons and caregivers and coaches for whatever little league or just you know being a supportive um co-parent and being a primary co-parent is another bigger trend we're seeing even in in the young men in japan so we need to morph and learn from this and i think how you brought that into the programs was really clear um very very present in how the the thoughtfulness that went into the design and I remember we I was having a conversation about how and and I training in Japan when you go to a training program when you go to a kenshu it is so bureaucratic and technocratic and technical skills being taught a lot of the time and you were saying how you really wanted it to be more of a holistic leadership framework not just come and get a skill a technical skill and then we send you home and you've learned how to do you know use use the computer or use microsoft word and that's important too and we need those kinds of trainings too but for these academies it was really like inspiring their minds and we've lost our guest temporarily but i imagine she will be joining back uh, on the feed so we will stay tuned and in the meantime, I will share about um, the many ways that I learned as a, as a research through this participatory action research project, where we 
we had the opportunity to, you know, I was able to meet these individual women, roughly 90 to 95 women from all across Tohoku, women who were engaged in rebuilding their own cities were, they were engaged in rebuilding and they were recognized within their cities as change agents locally. And um, they were, they were encouraged to bring, be nominated to join the Grassroots Academy program. And they were selected in some ways because of their leadership and recognition locally. And they were brought into the academies as, you know, recognized change agents. And I, from that point, then watched their leadership journey unfold for three and four years and also did in-depth interviews with them to get to know them better, to hear in some ways their backstories, to hear where they came from, why they came to the academies, what they were learning through the academies, what their aspirations were, like in five years time, where did they want to be? And so I kept, we sort of started the project, the research around 2002, you know, 2015 was the first pivotal academy that the Grassroots Academy and that NPO Women's Eye hosted, right? And and I would then, in my interview, and I think, Megami, we've talked about this, but I would, I would often, as one of my interview questions would be, okay, the international agreement that all member states around the world who care about disaster risk reduction, we just had this big agreement adopted in 2015. The next agreement is going to be adopted in 15 years. So can yeah. you add 15 to what your current age is? And then can you just think about take a minute and I would give them a couple of minutes to think. And I would say in 15 years, where will you be? How old will you be? And they would think out loud. They would, we, they would do, we would do this thought partnering. Oh my goodness. Okay. In 15 years. Oh, my children have left the home. I know I no longer have kids living at home. I'm going to be, I assume still living where I live, but what will I be doing? Will I be engaged in the current projects I'm in? Or will I, will my career be different? Yeah. Will I have, and they would go through this out loud imagining of going 15 years ahead and go, Oh, Wow. And I would ask them to set some ideas about how, to, how they hope to use that 15 years to fulfill their happiness. And just, just that, just to say, think about, and then, and then you, you, you go away. And as a researcher, I sort of leave it, right? And I leave it and I would check back with them like a year later or two years later. But in the meantime, they've, there's a percolating there's a constant percolating that, oh, in 15 years, where am I going to be? What do I want to do? What did I tell Jackie in that interview? Huh. And the percolating in your mind keeps happening so that they're thinking forward about what, what their happiness requires and then how they can help sort of set the course towards that and keep that anchor uh, directing them. And then they would have another Leadership Academy experience with Women's Eye. And there was just this interesting leadership blossoming that, that I would see. And so it's this... How do we how do we support each other through like you say if we circle back Megami to your your mentoring of the young woman from the or, from the young teenage girl from the orphanage just even allowing to hold the space of asking different questions about what what, do you, what does your happiness require where do you want to be um, and how do you want to end up uh, in fifteen years and then how do you think about yeah. just focusing on you if now your children are gone. Where do you situate yourself back as the center of your journey, right? And I think exactly. that was so interesting yeah. for Seattle. That was like yeah. hands down. Yeah, yeah. That was exactly what I was thinking. That's really the Seattle program also, I think, impacted you. And yes. All of the participants and including me as well. That's through the program, we really try to see, not learning from outside, but just try to see yourself how you really feel what's your voice in inside you what really desire you you know 
what do you want to do in your life? Kind of week, long journey of yourself. And, so, and we heard each other. We heard each other share. Oh right? yes. What is our yeah. highest? What is our highest calling in life here on this earth? What is our highest calling? And then we heard each other, and we believed mm-hmm. each other. We believed yeah. what was heard, what was told and shared, and said, "Great, that sounds fabulous." Like, yes, we want to support you in those efforts, whatever it is you want to do. You know, you choose. So you have full sovereignty to go forward with your you know pathway of self-determination to choose your journey and then all of the rest of us bearing witness and honoring what they said as, as their choice right yes so, so I think yeah so we kind of realized that it's not just l- learning from outside you know what's the leadership how we can support each other but also just to to see yourself to hear your voice why you are doing this? Why do you really want to do? And just be authentic of yourself. And it comes to what you want to do. And it comes what you want to do next. So I hope that I'll be doing for the next 15 years like that. that <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too, right? I mean, it launched, a, certainly for me, this this quest to go back to my feminist philosophical roots of what passions mm-hmm. me as a, somebody believing in diversity and, you know, feminist thinking and thought leadership and then bringing that to society. And I had, yeah. I had gotten too far removed from that even in my academic journey. And I, I really it? found that recentering in Seattle with everyone, and it was yes. so amazing. Yeah. So, so, but then that's why we're planning for the April 11th event as well. We are indeed. We yeah. are both of us uh, planning and the creating this event. I hope everyone yes. will join us. Yes. From, not from Japan, but from the states and yes. wherever they are. We will have simultaneous translation and we will be hearing all of the stories of these amazing, impressive change agents, young women from the grassroots of Tohoku. We're going to be holding this uh, one month after the anniversary. So on April 11th mm-hmm. in the morning in Japan, but in the evening on March, or sorry, April 10th. Uh, for everyone joining us from North America. We will be sharing that information shortly. Um, And uh, maybe we can close, Megumi, if you had one pivotal message or insight or learning journey from your experiences of the last 10 years working with young women leaders in Tohoku and Mm -hmm. through your own journey, what would you want for people to think about uh, moving forward? So I will just say that's just try anything, everything you want to try. <laughs> and, and you don't need to be afraid. You know, it's okay to make a mistake. You know, you learn so much from mistakes and failing. Oh and it's okay, you know. Uh, and ask help if you fail. And then you get to, maybe you, it's an opportunity to, to have a really good relationship with someone in when you are really in a bad place and someone help you and that's uh, the real friend and I've been through that and the so um just listen to your own voice 
and enjoy. <laughs> Good. That was amazing. And I, you know, the pivotal phrase I kept from the Seattle experience was yeah. Jibun ni mukiao. Jibun mm-hmm. ni mukiao. We had time. We took time to meet ourselves and to turn yeah. inwards. And so you're what you just said, um, to listen to your your own voice and your own desires, uh, I think is exactly what our heart desires, right? To, how do we go back to honoring that is the best takeaway ever. And for today's guests, um, we will leave you with that inspirational point and, and goal that we just need to keep going back to listening to our, what our heart desires. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wish to thank uh, Megumi thank for you. an amazing interview that, of course, we ran a little bit over time because there was just too much to share and talk about that I, I know. couldn't fit and I didn't want us to cut short. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play. Where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.